Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Power Trip of Wrestling, brought to you today and powered by Meowbox. Meowbox is a monthly cat subscription box service full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And please be sure to stay tuned a little bit later on in the show for a special promotion just for the listeners of the two-man Power Trip of Wrestling, courtesy of Meowbox and courtesy of Meowbox.com. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. And John, I'm rushing a little bit because we call this show an epic. That's right. Al Snow joins us today for another one of our epics that, man, it encompasses his entire career from being a, a world-renowned wrestler through a trainer to the stars to what he does now for TNA Impact Wrestling. You know, and Al Snow really is an unsung hero of the business that he was a great worker. He was smart when it came to having a great eye for uh, up-and-coming talent. You know, he worked territories. You know, he he's managed to get so much done in a 31-year career, but I kind of want to get your take on the fact that he is an unsung hero of the business, and what he does provide still to this day is very, and I hate to use the pun, impactful, but what's your take on Al Snow and what he brings to uh, the wrestling business still in 2015? Well, yes, Chad, we're back here yet again with, as you said, another epic episode to go along with our epic series where you know it's a tad bit longer of an interview which means it's a little bit better of an interview as well i mean we did it with matt morgan and scotty riggs with the two big ones that i would consider epics and al snow fits right in that category boy what a chat we had with al snow and boy he's an underrated legend in this business for sure think about his career 33 years 1982 he started in the wrestling business crazy you know, after all these years, he's still wrestling, and quite frankly, he's not that old, and he's in great shape, and he can still go. So, crazy to say, 33 years has gone by pretty damn fast, and he's been wrestling, you know, basically ever since. But, you know, along with wrestling, of course, 
you know, being a trainer and a coach and a mentor has also been a key role in his career, not only in Tough Enough, but down in OVW. And of course, his role uh, as a producer, agent, whatever you want to call it within TNA. So boy, has he had, you know, the gamut of uh, positions, you know, besides wrestling. And, you know, he's got a big backstage role in uh, TNA, obviously, and obviously he plays a big role in OVW training, and coming soon, he will play a big role in the United Kingdom training over there, so stay tuned for that, and listen to his plugs at the end for that, and it's funny, you know, when you think about Al Snow, you, you think of Head, obviously, you think of his relationship with Mick Foley, you think of a long-storied career, but he's kind of an unsung hero of the business. Really think about it. He's a great worker, smart guy. Obviously mentioned the training background. He worked for all the territories. He worked for all the big leagues, the WWF. Uh, obviously, ECW was big and you know, TNA. So, I mean, he's been there, done that, done it all. And think about his career. Definitely an underrated legend. And, you know, we go into great detail about it, how he was saying Jerry Lawler and putting him to a high esteem. And obviously, Lawler's one of the greatest of all times and, you know, huge, huge legend. But I consider him, you know, this day and age, you know, Al Snow is, you know, the now Jerry the King Lawler, where you, you put Jerry in a feud with a guy, you know, then to get the guy over. And it seems like TNA and, and some, you know, a lot, obviously a lot of other leagues that he's been in, but you put Al Snow in there with a guy that you really are trying to get over. And it's basically the quote unquote Jerry Lawler role. And now I call it the Al Snow role. And you, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and you'll hear all about that at the end of the interview. That's some great stuff. So. I can't, you know, stress it enough. This is an epic one, and he is an underrated legend without a shadow of a doubt. And when talking about Al Snow, of course we're going to talk about Head. Of course we're going to talk about the hardcore style, the hardcore matches of the Attitude Era that he was a huge part of. But the thing I really wanted to touch on with him was his absolutely phenomenal run in ECW in 1997 into 1998 where he basically was maybe in the top five you know quote baby faces uh, or most over performers actually in the entire wrestling business of course there was the Austin era at the time but what I like to dub it as is the Al Snow era where at that point Al Snow really was just pretty much one of the most over guys in the actually entire wrestling business you know you think about the fact that these buildings in the, that ecw era and if you happen to be around as a fan in that era or go to one of the shows i mean he was just unbelievably over with the crowd and we get into that and there's actually a very funny story about uh, a friend of the two-man power trip of wrestling who uh, followed al snow around a, a local mall chanting head because they were such huge fans of his at the time but you know he like we had mentioned 31 year career you know he's a kind Kind of a journeyman at that point. He had some runs in the WWF that didn't really go anywhere, but he gets the ECW, creates this character, and it just completely takes off. Even though we're going to cover the whole entire head run and the WWF hardcore run, I really want to get your take, John, on the what I like to call ECW Al Snow era. Yeah, Chad, you know, the most interesting part that I really, really, really wanted to discuss with Al because it was, you know, perhaps, you know, his biggest moment. You know, perhaps the the shining moment in his career because it was where he finally got the recognition. He finally got noticed. You know, and then after this, he finally got noticed by WWF and became a ma major player for the WWF for many, many years to come. And that was the ECW run with Al Snow and Head and obviously the awesome Prodigy song. You know, I mean, it was just everything was perfect. The mannequin head, uh, you know, his character, just his promos, everything he did was dead on and spot on and 
you know, what a genius for reinventing himself and creating a character, and you're all about what he thinks of, you know, wrestlers that are great wrestlers, you know, quote-unquote journeymen that are just great workers, but are just quite missing that one thing, that one character, that one definable thing that connects you with the audience, and boy, did he hit the nail on the head with the Al Snow and head gimmick, and it was just awesome. The ECW run, I, I just love it so much, because he was probably... You know, dare I say it, but the second or third most over guy in the business at that point. I mean, you could throw Stone Cold Steve Austin out there being super, super over. And, you know, as you started moving into 98 more, obviously Bill Goldberg became one of the most over guys in the business. And then obviously he had Sting, who was super over. So, I mean, you could, without a doubt, you can put him up there with those guys as being one of the most over guys as a babyface in the business at that point because when that music hit boy that ECW crowd went absolutely nuts and we talk about that whole run we talk about Paul Heyman we talk about the world title match with Shane Douglas you know we talk about teaming with Lance Storm we talk about the whole gamut there in ECW and uh that was quite an intriguing part of the talk, I will say, but, you know, I'm going to stress it again. This one was an epic, and it was so great to talk to Al Snow, but even more than that, it was so great to talk to him as long as we did, and I absolutely loved our conversation with Al. And we really want to thank Al Snow for coming on the show and giving us as much as he did because it was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to him. And I especially love that we were able to touch on the fact that the Monkees should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's not only the thought of Leaf Cassidy, but it's also the thought of Al Snow and also Chad from the two-man power trip of wrestling. So that was really cool. I'm glad we touched on that. That was pretty much uh, the number two thing I wanted to talk about with Al. But he's a true professional. He really is a, a great asset to professional wrestling and we wish nothing but continued success, which I'm completely positive and completely uh, sure that uh, Al Snow is going to have no trouble uh, continuing that great success with professional wrestling. Still 31-plus years in the books and all the best. But speaking of all the best, let's talk about Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And even though Al Snow says, what does everybody want? Everybody wants to go over to Meowbox.com. Throw in, in the checkout box the code. Power Trip 10. That's right. Power Trip 10. All capitals. Checkout box. Hit that up. You're going to get 10% off your first monthly box subscription courtesy of the two man power trip of wrestling. And thanks to Meowbox and Meowbox.com. Now, John, before I hand the keys over to you and you drive the car the rest of the way, hit them with a little bit of two man power trip of wrestling business. Tell them a little bit more about Meowbox. You do your thing, and nobody does it finer than you, my friend. So the floor is yours. Yes, Meowbox, Meowbox.com. Meowbox has a purchase called One Box Can, where Every meow box purchased, a can of food will be donated to a shelter cat on your behalf. So please, go to meowbox.com if you're interested because all the edible items there are made in the USA or Canada so you know where edible items are coming from. But in my case, I have a very, very picky cat named Lucy. She's a very good girl, but she has a special diet. So we trade out the edible items with toys and surprises, which is no problem. And I love that about Meowbox. So please go to meowbox.com, promo code POWERTRIP10 for 10% off your first subscription. One more time, meowbox.com, promo code POWERTRIP10. Now for some TMPT business. First of all, let's plug the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And you can go there for all the booking info on the great Kevin Fertig, formerly known as Kevin Thorne or Mordecai, who may be coming to a town near you. So please make 
yourself a part of the Bite Club. That is TMPT over wrestling.com for all the booking needs on Kevin Fertig, a.k.a. Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Murdoch. Excuse me, Mordecai. Also, don't forget his new, brand spanking new, Pro Wrestling Tea Store. Maybe get yourself a Bike Club shirt. And he'll be having more great designs coming up soon. So please, check out Kevin Thorne on the great, great PWT Store. Now, for some other P- uh, TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at WrestlingPal and at Two Man Power Trip. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, while you're there, check out the feed for past great episodes, including the late, great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, good old JR, Jim Ross, Harley Race, Rookie the Dragon, Steamboat, Stan the Lariat Hanson, Tully Blanchard, WWE's Kane, WWE's Dean Ambrose, and so many more. So check us out on iTunes. Also, don't forget to check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. All you got to do is go to the I-95 Sports Network on Google. Check it out there. Click on the button, and there you go. Search us out and listen to some great, great episodes we have on there. Some great best ofs. The two-man power trip of wrestling. Now, without any further ado, I got to send it off to an epic one of our best folks. He is a former WWF European Champion, a former six-time WWF Hardcore Champion, a former WWF Tag Team Champion, and who can forget, a Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion. What does everybody want? What does everybody need? Our guest, Al Snow. Please enjoy. performers in the history of professional wrestling. He's a former WWF Tag Team Champion, a former WWF European Champion, a six-time Hardcore Champion, and how can we forget, a Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion. He is one of the greats. He's the leader of the job squad, and if you want to get a little head, we're about to get some now. Al Snow, thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you guys very much, and uh, you forgot to mention that I'm also a magician for the blind. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that is something in research that I definitely skipped over, but that is quite accidental, but that's a hell of a skill. It is. Um, I go to, you know, DFWs, uh, Rotary Clubs, things like that. It's my way of giving back to the community. Um, They love it. I mean, um, especially (laughs) card tricks. Uh, you know, it's like, is this your card? And I'm like, it is. And they go, oh, great. You know, uh, I have to say to die after every trick if they don't know anything happened. You know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> You can do it is on your a card? speaker phone. I don't know. It is. Ta-da. <laughs> you can do it on a speaker phone and still uh, get paid the same but be in a different room. So you don't even need to uh, put on pants if you didn't want to. True. I don't even have to if I go to the Rotary Club. So That's true. <laughs> well, with that being said, let's transition into something that I think you also know a lot about. And although it might be uh, your other skills might be for the blind, let's talk about something where there could be some smoke and mirrors. And that is the Ooh. great business of professional wrestling. Now, 
with you being such a, uh, I, I have to say like this, like a, uh, such a storied career, uh, you've been everywhere, you've seen it all, you're helping train, you know, the next uh, generation of stars, but, you know, looking at 2015 as a whole and where we are in the professional wrestling business, have you seen the evolution of the business going in a positive way with the social media integration, uh, everybody's thirst for more knowledge, everybody trying to get on the inside. Do you see, looking back, you know, that 2015 is like more, you know, a portal into the unknown when it comes to uh, the next days of professional wrestling? Oh, my God. That's a lot to, to really uh, uh, take in and, and, and expound upon. I, uh, uh, where do I start? Uh, as far as the evolution of wrestling, I think it's been phenomenal and amazing. And, 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 but it, it has been exactly what it's always been, and that's a mirror of present-day society. Um, I think that professional wrestling has always evolved and will always evolve if it continues to exist because uh, an audience, the audience that we uh, try to entertain now are much more sophisticated um, and much more involved themselves than what they were even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, children on the, you know, you know, a kid six or seven years old can be on the internet and access you know, any, un, any untold amounts of information, not to mention tremendous amounts of porn. I mean, I don't know if you guys have known this, but there is a lot of porn on the Internet. I was shocked. Um, uh, just recently found that out. Uh, and I have, my right arm is huge. Uh, Popeye. As far as social media is concerned, um, and the, the desire to be on the inside, the desire to be on the inside of any entertainment business by the, the core group of fans, um, you know, those people that really are passionate about it and are truly devoted to it, whether it be wrestling or movies or, you know, or some sporting events. Um, they've always been there and it's always been the case. I just, I personally, I think that allowing such access, greater and greater access, which is being, I think, is kind of in the direction, is a mistake uh, because it humanizes um, the performers and it takes away the mystique. Um, that being said, you know, uh, uh, I, I, the, the analogy I like to use is that if you paid to see Elvis, really 99% of the population, the only place they ever saw Elvis was on stage. You know, you paid to see Michael Jackson unless it was some uh, executed, contrived public appearance. You only saw Michael Jackson on stage. And that kept those personas, those characters, those people, those human beings from being human beings and being a larger than life, thus continuing to be an attraction. Because <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, it's, it's, you like vanilla, I like chocolate, we all like ice cream. There are certain things that are intrinsic uh, about wrestling, and one of them is, is that a wrestler, a professional wrestler, is, his job is not to wrestle, not to entertain the audience. It's to motivate an audience to leave their comfortable chairs at home, get in their cars, 
uh, drive to a building and pay money to see them. That's the hardest job uh, you can imagine. Uh, and, you know, that's why movie actors are held in higher esteem than television actors, because there's no investment on the audience's part to watch a television actor um, other than turning on the channel, you know, turning the TV on and paying for cable. Uh, you know, whereas with a movie actor, a person has to not only pay money to see the actor do their craft, they have to get up and physically leave their homes and, and you know, go sit around people they don't want to sit around in a chair they don't want to sit in. And uh, that's a much, much harder job. And the more you take away that mystique, the more you humanize, the more access you give to people from behind the scenes, then, it, it, you know, it, it, they become less of that... Um, that person or thing that they want to, that the audience wants to live vicariously through. Now, granted, that's my opinion, and opinion is probably the lowest form of human knowledge there is. So that's for what it's worth. Hmm. You know, it's funny because I you don't look know back if you expected to... quite a lengthy answer, but you know. Hey, if it was this as long as my question, I feel like uh, you know after listening to uh, myself back. But you know, you look at in two thousand one when you were doing the uh, the first tough enough. And you see that, you know, submissions via VHS tape, you know, looking back, it's so primitive. But being the way to get your name out there was to send in a tape and to really get your your stuff out there uh, was, you know, quite frankly, putting it in an envelope and sending it off, maybe never hearing anything or seeing anything ever again. But now, as everything's evolved and as we're talking about people getting into the business and getting into wrestling, you know, there's great wrestling schools all across this country, but now... You know, social media, people just want to get out there and say, oh, you know, I'm a wrestler. I do this, I do that. And you talk about the mystique and you talk about, you know, ice cream, vanilla versus chocolate. Is that going to devalue, at the end of the day, the people who want to get into the business because they're seeing that everybody now, since there is a computer and there is mobile phones, everybody who wants to be a wrestler on paper can be one. But do you think that's going to prevent people from trying down the road to seriously, you know, getting into the actual wrestling business? Well, certainly. Um, to, one, one, to one part of it, yeah, certainly. Because it, it takes away the, the mystique of it all. It takes away that, you know, being enamored with uh, wanting to be it is no longer is it this great grand thing that only select people get to do that you want to be a part of. And, and the real motivation... Um, and I, I really feel, um, and again, this is purely conjecture and opinion, but I think that it really, uh, our society now uh, supports my opinion. And that is, is that I, I'm nine, I'd say eight, maybe seven or eight out of ten people, uh, uh, whether it be wrestling or anything, uh, anymore, are more concerned about being famous for being famous sake and being a celebrity than they are about having a true passion for doing the things they do. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people out there that still have a passion for doing it. The real, true motivating factor for a large number of people is that they get to be a celebrity. And a prime example of this is as far as wrestling is concerned. As you talk to anybody, 
and, and rightfully so. They all want to be in WWE, and, and who wouldn't? It's the biggest platform to uh, sell your product, which is you. Um, but the problem is that most of these people don't look at it as a platform to sell your product. They don't look at it as a partnership with yourself and WWE and a business relationship. They look at it as it's an opportunity now to be recognized on the street and for people to come up and ask for the autograph. And their be-all, end-all is to, in professional wrestling, is to be a WWE superstar. And for a lot of these people, they feel like that once they are uh, removed from WWE, that their careers are now suddenly over, that they, they no longer exi- you know, can exist as a wrestler, where, and they can, you know, the door's closed as far as ever coming back, when that's not the case. You know, you now have the opportunity to go out in the world and take advantage of the platform that WWE gives you, which is such an immense, amazing platform, and then reinvent yourself and possibly be brought back again in a completely different manner and get a completely different run um, through WWE one more time. Um, but they are so caught up in the that WWE is the be-all, end-all that, that they can't see any, you know, they don't do wrestling for wrestling's sake anymore. They, they do it just to be famous. And the same goes with, you know, a lot of musical acts and, and you know, etc. I mean, it, it, it seems to be the, the prominent thing. And let's face it, fame is now the, the new ultimate currency in, in you know, our society. Um, it means more to be a celebrity than it does to be rich. And people that are rich want to be celebrities and are endeavoring to do so. Very, very true and uh, very strange kind of the way society goes. But if I could turn this around and kind of rewind the clock a little bit, and, you know, we're talking about getting into the WWF or, you know, now WWE. But back then, you were a bit of a, you know, a journeyman, but you were, you know, a very experienced wrestler, almost, you know, underrated, under the radar. You know, you're going through the indies. You're wrestling pretty much everywhere. Can you tell, like, you know, talk a little bit about your journey, like the first time around into the WWF, how, you know, you're basically kind of doing the uh, the enhancement matches. And, you know, basically, how did you get noticed by the WWF at that point? Um, how I got noticed uh, was at the time I had been working for probably 13 years, uh, and they weren't, they were just becoming, I guess you could call it independence, because at that, back in that day, you worked in the territories when I first started out, and then when the territories started going away, there were outlaw groups, uh, outlaw companies, you know, they weren't affiliated with, at that time, National Wrestling Alliance, or uh, you know, or any one you know, particular uh, territory. They they ran on their own, and they usually just, you know, they ran spot shows, and, uh, which spot shows are shows that are not run on a consistent uh, basis, whether it be weekly or monthly, they're just, you know, you come into town, you pop the town, and you leave. Um, and uh, um, that went on for quite some period of time, you know, uh, doing that. And then um, you know, one of the last holdouts, uh, you know, at that time in 95, uh, early parts of the 90s, um, ECW, of course, had started. Um, 
and you know WCW was still in existence, and then of course WWF, and then Smoky Mountain like with Jim Cornette, and uh, and there were some other smaller holdouts around that time too, um, but those were the ones that kind of stood out, and uh, um, but you got to keep in mind too that those other smaller holdouts were they. You know, the business was different from the standpoint that back then, uh, those smaller holdouts, you know, they were still having very, uh, what can you say, uh, lucrative crowds, lucrative audiences showing up and paying uh, to see the shows. And, you know, people, you know, were, you know, uh, you could make a living still quite quite well, um, not Fantastic, of course, but at the time it wasn't, you know, nothing to see that um, by working those shows. Um, I got noticed. I had known Cornette for, you know, quite a few years. Um, He never really seemed to take notice because I didn't have a character, a definable personality, per se. Um, And that's the one main thing you've got to learn or figure out for yourself in wrestling. And, uh, at the time, I was working with Dan Severn. I broke him into professional wrestling, and um, he wanted to do UFC, which was back then was, you know, was truly, it wasn't like its own style of mixed martial arts. It was wrestler versus boxer, boxer versus karate guy, karate guy versus, you know, uh, Muay Thai kickboxer, sumo wrestler, and you, you know, you fought three separate fights that night. You won a tournament to win the UFC. And we went to Oklahoma City for UFC 4. Um, I kind of trained and worked with Dan in preparing for uh, that, and I was in his corner. And and it was funny how it worked. You know, um, he'd won two fights, and, you know, they were interviewing him and were asking him. To, and I could tell, you know, the interviewer was trying to get Dan to put over Boyce Gracie, who was like the star of UFC at the time. And it, for some reason, just annoyed me. And... Um, they were asking, well, what are you going to do now? You know, uh, you just won your fight. What are you going to do? And they were trying to lead him on to get him to say something about Hoist Gracie and all that. And I just snapped and, you know, like, what a stupid question. I, I said, well, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to go back and have sex in the locker room. And, you know, <laughs> they cut they cut us off real quick and got us out of there. And uh, Cornette was watching the pay-per-view and thought it was awesome. And, at the time, I was kind of working for ECW for Paul Heyman, and he brought me in to smoke the mountain. Cornette did as this smart alecky, you know, chicken heel that was gives. Unfortunately, uh, Eddie Gilbert had been in that spot prior and had just passed away. Or, or no, no, yeah, I think he had went to Puerto Rico and and then unfortunately he had passed away. Uh, but I think at that point he had just left and went to Puerto Rico, and. Cornette brought me in to be uh, Unibom, uh, Glenn Jacobs Kane, his partner. And I was supposed to be the mouth and who would pick the fights and, you know, and then Kane would be the muscle. And uh, um, Jim Ross was, you know, doing announcing there. And, um, you know, I Jim, you know, recommended me and suggested me to, you know, WWF, and at that time, I was contacted also by WCW, and 
uh, was brought down there for a tryout match, you know, a dark match, and, you know, literally like a week apart. I went to Atlanta, did a dark match, and then went to, you know, Stanford and spoke directly to Vince for a couple of hours and then made the decision to go to WWF. Which obviously, you know, you, you kind of played a, a couple, you know, different roles. I remember uh, obviously Avatar is, is kind of like the one that really, really uh, sticks out. But if I could just rewind one second. I don't know why. I don't know why that <laughs> that Avatar sticks out because literally there's only, I think, two or three television appearances that, you know, it just it didn't click. And that was, that was you know, back at the time I blamed everybody else. But really it was, you know, you... Once you step in the ring, it, it's up to you to do whatever it need, you need to do to make it work. And 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 I literally just came off a run. Of, I've been a heel for 13 years. You have to understand. I've been a heel. That's a completely different mindset in wrestling, being a heel. And then now I'm all of a sudden going to become. And I'm a, I'm a verbal, smart alecky, chicken heel. Almost all, for 13 years. Now all of a sudden I become this. Uh, nondescript um, babyface who carries a mask to the ring, puts it on, wrestles, and then takes off. It's like, what? You know, it was, uh, you know, it was such a departure from, you know, what I had done, which I'm not making excuses. It was still my responsibility to, you know, to make it work, to get it over, but I just it did it quick, you know. And then we... At the time, I uh, had, was doing a lot of uh, aerial moves and things like that, you know, that would have lended to the character. Problem was, you know, the WWF, which was one of the few places that used real rope, and they didn't, you know, a lot of guys were bigger guys, so they didn't do anything off the ropes, so the ropes were real loose. So it was treacherous to try to do how, anything that I used to do on a regular basis and do with ease on steel cables coming up there you pretty much took all that out because unless you did it off the turnbuckle, there was just, there wasn't no way you could just pull that out of your butt and do it with how treacherous it was to do on those ropes. But go ahead, I'm pausing. Oh, I was going to say Avatar, uh, very memorable. I don't know why. Always uh, the mask uh, always stuck with me and, and uh, there's a certain picture where I always, oh, that's good. <laughs> I don't know why it always stuck with me, but, uh, you know, yeah. that was kind of an interesting character for you. But if I could um, mention um, Smoky Mountain real quick, because uh, that's always, uh, especially on our show, we love Smoky Mountain, we love Cornette. And uh, we had Kane on, you know, we're um, you know a good friend of the show, and we were talking about his fond memories of teaming with you and Smoky Mountain. And he said he loved feuding with the, uh, the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah. Oh, yeah, those guys are. Uh, Ricky Morton, you know, Robert, is probably Robert Gibson's probably one of the most underrated uh, wrestlers, workers uh, in, in the business. And Ricky Morton is unquestionably a, a complete, literal genius when it comes to professional wrestling. I mean, it's it just it, it, it's it's mind-boggling to be quite honest with, you know, the older I get, the more appreciation I get for just incredibly how talented um, those guys are and Jerry Lawler. Um, it, it just, it's, it's you know, and, 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 and it's, it's astounding. It really is as to how truly, 
you know, good and how, how smart, you know, you know, the one thing that Robert lacked um, wasn't, wasn't his, his, uh, uh, how can I say this? He, he was very adept at understanding and knowing how to work an audience and how to work a true, in the true form, art form of a wrestling match. And so did Ricky. Ricky Morton did too. But the thing that Robert liked was, you know, per se, the charisma and the character. And was Robert was smart enough, and he put that with Ricky. And Ricky lacked, you know, that, um, you know, that that steadiness that, you know, slowing him down just a little bit. And Robert added that to him, and they that's what you know they worked so perfectly. And still to this day, they do. But you know, and a guy like Lawler, Lawler is absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, he he literally can sit there and you know, do commentating for six, eight months. And if you've ever noticed that if ever, you know, there's a guy that then feels like he really needs to get over as a babyface or get heat as a heel, he calls on Lawler. And Lawler can walk right in the ring and can and can be the babyface and get the guy heat as a heel. Or he can walk right in the ring and he can get over like a babyface and get the guy, you know, or get over as a heel and get heat and get the guy over as a babyface. And he he's so... It's so easy for him to do it, and 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 Ricky Robert in the same way. I mean, it's it's effortless for them. What it, what takes guys hours of thought and planning, and they just can do it by feel, and uh, and that that in it that's the one thing that is truly of the art form of professional wrestling, which it is truly an art form. Um, is being lost. Is that it, it, majority of it? Not all of it. And, and no matter what these, the, the older guys say, it, all of it wasn't done that way. A lot of it was pre-planned or talked about to some degree, maybe not not nearly to the degree it is now. But it was done, a lot of it, the majority of it was done by feel, by sense, and and in being in the moment. And, and the vast majority of it now is. And those guys, Ricky and Robert, to be the point, you know, uh, you know, uh, Glenn Jacobs talking about and Kane. Uh, it was awesome. It was such a great experience to work with those guys. Every night was like a night off. I mean, it was effortless. Yeah, you also said some of the tours that you guys had through some of those backwoods uh, towns were also uh, part of the excitement of Smoky Mountain wrestling. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, they were. You could get they could get pretty exciting. That's for sure. Well, so you look at that. You know, that but God bless them. I mean, thank God those people. Thank God those people paid to see us. I mean, because if it weren't for, you know, those people, we wouldn't have a career. I mean, I tell people, you know, people come up all the time. Oh, I'm such a big fan. I'm like, thank God, thank you so much. Because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be able to make a living. You know, and I mean that. I mean, I can't, you know, tell people how much I appreciate them being fans of wrestling or being fans of me. Because if it weren't for that, you know, how how else would I? And come on, guys, let's think about it. How, what of a more ridiculous way for a grown man to make a living? And I've been doing it for 33 years. I've literally, uh, um, you know, been paid to fake fight other men in my underwear for money, and <laughs> and to make believe, play make believe, to be characters and and 
dress up and run around and act like a goof all over the world. And, you know, where else do you get to do that? I mean, it's awesome. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. And you provide a hell of a lot of entertainment for millions of people. But, you know, I want to talk about that, that WWF era, that 95 96 era, and, and including Smoky Mountain in it, that it was a very heavy Smoky Mountain influence on that roster, and then going into, you know, the, the bigger years, uh, you know, obviously still with uh, Kane being on the roster now, there's still that Smoky Mountain uh, influence uh, in parts of it, I guess, but, you know, you look at guys like Candido, you know, yourself, uh, Glenn Jacobs would eventually get there, albeit, you know, they would take a while to get him where he needed to be, but you know, do you think that Smoky Mountain as being maybe like the last real, real territory uh, helped that WWF roster get through a difficult period where, you know, the WCW competition was really heating up? Well, WCW competition at that time really wasn't heating up. Um, actually, I think if you're talking about, you know, uh, ECW would probably be one of the last true territories. And um, and it, I think, um, it helped during that time because that was around the time uh, frame that, you know, WCW was really starting to ramp up to be uh, competition in a major way for WWE. And it was WWE that was, you know, um, in need of an influx of new talent and also uh, in addition to... Um, you know, new talent, uh, a new direction. And, you know, just like Smoky Mountain earlier had worked as, um, you know, worked as a farm team, as a quote-unquote developmental, before there were actual developmental territories, um, you know, ECW worked much in that same way. And it allowed, you know, the development of, Talent, lesser experienced talent, and it allowed talent to be sent there to, you know, reinvent themselves, I like me, you know. Um, I never quit. I tried, you know, because I had a really bad attitude, and, I, you know, again, blaming everyone else, but I, I I tried to quit WWF, and they rolled over my contract for another year, and, uh, and I knew that I had to leave and go someplace and reinvent myself, and I'd be in the spot that I was in, which wasn't a bad spot. It just wasn't the spot I wanted to be in. And, uh, you know, I got lucky and I got put on loan to ECW through God bless his heart. And I love him dearly, Chris Candido. And his association with Paul Heyman. And I appreciate Paul, you know, for going to Vince and, and, you know, basically, uh, or going to Bruce Pritchard or whoever at the time and, you know, letting me go there and, and then giving me the freedom to reinvent myself because I knew, I knew I had to. It was just, you know, and then when I came back, I had such great opportunities and then I uh, focused on the wrong things and, and failed to capitalize on them to their fullest extent. I capitalized on them and had a great, you know, career but I could have had even a greater one if I had, I, you know, the old mantra, if you only knew them, what you know now. Yeah, and I say that there's the uh, Hulk Hogan, WWF era. There's the Stone Cold Steve Austin, WWF era. And then there's the Al Snow, 
ECW era because at one point in 1997, there was not a bigger attraction in any promotion than Al Snow with that ECW crowd. And talk about that is, you know, you've been through territories, you've been through different organizations, but the way that ECW crowd took to you was something of beauty from a wrestling fan perspective when you see all those heads flopping back and forth and, you know, your mystery partner at a pay-per-view and the place goes nuts. But talk about how that fan base took to you and how at one point you really were one of the, you know, top attractions uh, in wrestling at that point in 97. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, you know, it's the goal. I mean, the one thing that a lot of people, um, you know, because I act now and I, you know, I've acted for quite some time now and, you know, worked on movie sets and stuff like that. And a lot of the, a lot of other forms of entertainment, they don't realize, they don't understand that wrestling is different from the standpoint that other, other entertainment, you can be and do other things. In wrestling, you're one of two things. You're either the thing that sells tickets, the thing that fills the building, or you're one of the things that help sell tickets. There is no third option. And you and everybody aspires to be that thing, to be the thing that's selling the tickets. And and when you get there and you and you hit at the right moment with the right time with the right thing, I mean it's it's awesome. It's the most you know, I just wish I had realized more of what I was doing and what I had at the time, and then I could have capitalized on it more and and had other opportunities throughout my career that I could have done the same thing and, you know, um, and missed out just due to my own ignorance um, and and lack of understanding at the time, even with all my experience, uh, because, of course, I didn't have experience as being the thing that tells tickets to that degree, you know, and, 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 you know, wrestling is notoriously a business that they don't communicate verbally. They don't, they don't help you. You know, it's kind of every man for himself and you've got to kind of figure it out as you go. And, uh, you know, um, it was, but it was, it's the most incredible thing in the world. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Believe me. It's, it's, it's truly, uh, that's living the dream. Is 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 when you reach that point of being being that thing. Yeah, you know, and I'm referencing the Living Dangerously pay per view uh, that was in Asbury Park, New Jersey, where you know it's just kind of funny. A good friend of mine and you know, good listener of the show uh, has a great story about uh, following you and Lance Storm around a local mall, chanting "Head" because. They were huge Al Snow fans, and they were clamoring for you because I'm telling you, at that point, it was a phenomenon. The music hitting, the heads bobbing, it was absolutely incredible. And uh, it was great to see somebody who could really, you know, perform in the ring versus just, you know, a lot of the plunder stuff that was going on in ECW up to 1997. It was great to actually see a departure and have somebody who could really get in there and have a decent match. Uh, it It was, I loved it. It was, without a doubt, one of the greatest times of my career. You know, um, undoubtedly. Uh, you know, I, I, I people always say, well, what's, you know, what was your favorite match? Who was the guy, you know, you most like to wrestle? You know, um, you know, it's so hard, certain things, because I've, I've been doing it for 33 years. And, and I got to tell you guys, I genuinely love what I do. I've always loved doing this. I always will. You know, it's, 
it's the only thing I've ever wanted to be. Um, and just getting to do it, and it doesn't matter if it's in front of a hundred people or a hundred thousand people for me. Just getting to do it has got to be the one, one of the greatest things I've been lucky enough to do for as long as I've gotten to do it. You know, and thank God nobody's been wise enough to figure out that, you know, um, I'm not as good as I could try to claim I am. And uh, <laughs> they just keep, oh, well, we'll just keep doing stuff with him because eventually he'll go away. And I don't. I just keep coming back and I just keep going, you know. And, um, you know, even, you know, recently in TNA with, you know, the Joey Ryan thing and the Grado thing and, you know, and then and just a couple weeks ago I got to go out and, you know, wrestle in, in you know, the Bound for Gold Battle Royal, you know, the, the Royal Rumble type thing. I, it just, for me, it's that's the craziest thing in the world. But, but being able to pick a moment, that moment in, in ECW was one of the greatest times of my career, unquestionably, without, without a doubt. I just, you know, the time in Smoky Mountain, I, I loved that time because I felt like physically and mentally everything clicked. Like I didn't have to, everything came effortlessly. I didn't have to work for it. I didn't have to try. And the same happened in ECW. Everything just fell in. And those are the, the moments, like, match-wise, those are the greatest matches. Or when you go out there and you don't have to talk to the other person and, and or even the, the referee, everybody just are in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing at the right speed, at the right emotional level, to react the right way, to get the audience to do exactly what you want, exactly the way you want, for as long as you want, for that period of time to build to the next thing, and it all just happens. It's not a, oh, i got to think about this, oh, i got to plan this out, and oh, I've got to, i got to, like pulling teeth. It's literally just, and it's, it's better than, it's the most amazing experience you can imagine. Because you have complete emotional control through the story you're telling with another person. Both are just doing it, acting, interacting, reacting, and the audience is along for the ride. And when you get into that groove, those moments like in Smoky Mountain, like in ECW and other, you know, tough enough even, God, it's what an incredible ride. It's just, it's just, it's it's what keeps. It becomes like a drug. You become an addict. It's you're constantly looking for that next fix. You know. Definitely, I could definitely see, that, especially thirty three years, you know, strong in the business, and that time at ECW. I mean, oof, boy, were you over, and you know, the mannequin heads, like Chad mentioned, the theme song, and. You were, you know, super, super over. But where did you, you know, get the idea that, you know, you're kind of going to do this schizophrenic gimmick and you're going to have the mannequin head and, you know, you're going to be basically talking to, you know, yourself, but, you know, really talking ahead. Where did that all come from? Um, it, it came from the fact that I was Leaf Cassidy in WWF at the time. And I and I started, whenever, at the last couple PD appearances, when I would I'd lose a match, I'd just lose it. And I, like, went after Jim Ross. He didn't know that I was going to do it. And that's, you know, and nobody ever called me down about it or anything. They just let me do it. 
And so I just kept doing it because I figured anybody who had spent that much time doing what they I had been doing and not had what I felt was quote-unquote success, which I was completely mistaken, but I was so frustrated and so aggravated, I felt like eventually you'd have a nervous breakdown. You'd snap. And, you know, I tried different ways once I went to ECW to continue to show that. And nothing really worked. Nothing really clicked. And uh, I was, you know, uh, looking for different things. And I was studying uh, books on abnormal psychology. And I uh, saw a styrofoam head in the back. And I remembered Mick as a joke. Mick Foley had, you know, was was Bob Holly, Sid Vicious, and Mick Foley and I in California, and we were traveling together. And, you know, uh, I think it was Midian had thrown, uh, him, uh, Phineas Goblin had thrown, uh, Dennis Knight had thrown the styrofoam head up in the air that, you know, Mick put his leather mask on to retain its shape when he put it in his bag. And it kind of cut a chunk out of the mouth. And Mick was, you know, calling it a lane and like he was going to do sexual things with it. And, hotel room and I saw the mannequin the styrofoam head in the back um, I had just worked with great Sasuke uh, from Japan or Sasuke or however you say his name and I picked it up and we took some pictures for the Japanese magazine and I went you know what I remembered a case study about a woman who was apparently schizophrenic like transference disorder meaning she heard voices from an inanimate object and she assumed they were sick not her. They were the thing that were crazy. And so I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to treat this thing as if it's, you know, I'm going to talk to it, and I'm going to assume that it's crazy, not me. And that was my whole attitude. And it it became a voice for the frustration I felt. I directed it out through that. And, and literally by happenstance, you know, right when I was supposed to get this you know, Paulie was going to do something with me. And, uh, you know, he was trying to give me the rub with Sandman. I worked with Paul Diamond that night in the ECW arena, and he, he did a gourd buster on me, like a suplex that dropped you face first. My right arm got trapped up underneath me, and it completely dislocated my shoulder. I mean, it was bad. And boy, it took three doctors to pull it back in that night. And um, I couldn't wrestle for two weeks, and it was right before the November to Remember pay-per-view. And again... God, Chris Candido, in a production meeting, speaks up, you know, and, you know, kind of pushes for a vignette they do with me in the back. There's no direction, just so you understand. There's no, hey, it's just, I'm going to be in the back, uh, you talk in the head, and, every, and everybody was going to be around like they're getting ready for the show. Okay. Well, that's it, you know. And so, and that one, if it hadn't been for that one vignette, I don't think the head would have, you know, the head gimmick would have ever taken off nearly like it did. Because that was the, that was the, that was the big thing. That was the tipping point that made, that everybody got, everybody understood, you know, I was crazy. And I got the most valuable thing in wrestling, in in entertainment. Fans were now able to, one, connect with me. Two, they were able to describe me to their friends and family in a sentence or less. They could turn to anybody. You could turn to anybody and go, you've got to watch a show. There's this guy. He's completely insane. He talks to a head. He acts like it's real. He's out of his mind. 
And you now, and then other people were now intrigued and would watch because he'd want to see what was this guy doing. And that's the most valuable thing. And that's the one thing that every person in wrestling and in really in the entertainment field has to develop. It's essential. It's to be able to have an audience be able to describe you to their friends and family in a sentence or less. It doesn't matter how good a performer you are. If you don't have that thing, because I spent 13, 14, 15 years without that thing. I was the best kept secret in wrestling for years because I didn't have that definable character. I started developing it over the years as a heel, and even with the head, I felt I was still going to be a heel because I was crazy and I was talking to the head, and it just it became what it was. And I thank God every day for that plastic head and, you know, and for happenstance of people, you know, speaking up at the right time to uh, give me those opportunities. And, and for whatever reason, I was able to do what I did the way I did it for it to work. And, you know, it's so amazing, you know, how you were able to get so over. But one thing I was interested in, you know, NBCW was kind of funny because you're the most over guy, I mean, obviously. And, you know, you're going into uh, Wrestlepalooza and, you know, you're going to fight Shane Douglas, the franchise, for the ECW world title. Now, is there a reason that Paul didn't put the title on you? And is it because maybe, you know, he felt like you were headed back to Vince or maybe you were headed back to Vince at that point? Well, I wasn't at that point, but... uh... And this is just my take on it, and it's it's complete supposition, speculation, assumption. I don't know. You know, I wasn't privy to any master plan other than that Paul, you know, Paul loved to do the, the alternate thing. But I think because Paul was in communication with, with WWE a lot, um, and, you know, and, and, but I was very happy in ECW at that point. And I was prepared. I had actually literally sent in a letter asking for my release because um, you had to do it 90 days in advance. And um, I was prepared to just stay in ECW. You know, I was fine. But now you got to understand that Paulie never really invested anything in me other than he gave me the TV time and, and, and he took what I did. But I never really beat... And, you know, I didn't get what you would call, quote-unquote, the wrestling push. Because I didn't start beating guy. I didn't beat Sabu. I didn't beat Rob Van Dam. I didn't beat Tommy Dreamer. I didn't beat, you know, all those guys on my way up to Shane Douglas. I worked with all the underneath guys, and um, which was fine, you know. But I still got over to the point to where all he could have to, would have to capitalize on it. And his great plan, according to him, to me, was, Everybody knows you're going to win. And I think it's going to be cool that we don't let you, that we do the unexpected. And I was like, okay, you know, that's what you want to do because it's not going to change the fact that I'm still going to get, I'm going to get myself over. Um, And that sounds kind of arrogant to say, but it's the truth. I was going to still get myself over. And... Um, so it, it didn't matter to me if I won or lost. It never has, because that's the one thing that's fake about wrestling is the win or loss. So it doesn't matter if you win or lose to get you over. You can still get over. Um, 
And uh, in a prime example of that would be Tommy Dreamer. Look at how over he was in, in ECW, and he never won a match until the very end. He started, you know, won like one or two. Um, you know, winning doesn't mean anything. Uh, but so it didn't bother it didn't bother me at the time. But then, you know, uh, I didn't think it was the right thing to do business wise, personally, because I thought. I thought people were not going to be happy about it, and I felt like business-wise, it would have probably been better to let me win it, and then the following week, you know, they, they had Taz beat Shane or, or whatever the time frame was, uh, let me and Taz wrestle and then have Taz beat me. And then that way, everybody would have been happy. You know, the audience would have gotten what they paid to see. And to prove that point, I had spoken to Terry Taylor, you know, when I first went to TNA, and he said, you know, i got to tell you, you know, we were talking about the ECW thing and about the world power, and he asked me the same thing about why Paul didn't put it on me. And I said, I, I, to be quite honest, I, I don't know. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a little more background here in a second. And he said, well, he said, i got to tell you, it was the biggest mistake I've ever seen because I so expected you to win and felt you should have that the minute you didn't, that was it. I was done. I didn't, I didn't care about the ECW anymore. It so turned me off. And, um, you know, and that was an unsolicited opinion. And, but at that same time, I had just resigned with WWE. And the reason I had, and, you know, was because, you know, Vince Russo had been contacting me about sending my tapes of what I'd been doing into the office, and um, I was reluctant to do it. I didn't want to go back. Um, you know, I was happy where I was, was at. And again, remember, I, uh, it wasn't about the money for me. I, I enjoyed doing what I was doing. Um, but then I saw a brand-new opening for the show that they had just redone, and, uh, and I wasn't featured anywhere on that opening. Nowhere, which told me, I wasn't one of the acts that, you know, Paulie had plans for. Well, I was like, you know, we were in Florida, and I was at Jerry Lynn's house, and I was like, well, I've made my mind. That made my mind up. I'm going to send my stuff into, you know, Vince. Uh, because up until that time, you got to remember, I, I never beat, quote, unquote, anybody. So there were no plans for me up to that point. And then clearly after there must not have been no plans for me because, as you guys stated, not me, I was the most overact in ECW, and I'm nowhere on the opening of the show. Well, that doesn't bode very well. So I sent myself to Vince Russo, and then shortly after that, Vince McMahon called me. And, you know, both times that I went and was brought into WWE, Vince McMahon himself spoke to me and hired me. Not hired me because you don't get hired. And that's the other myth or misnomer by fans. You don't get fired as a wrestler either because you can't fire a professional wrestler. It's a business relationship between the promoter and the, the wrestler. It's never a job. You're not an employee. not like you work at Walmart, for Christ's sake. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Now, did you ever think when you went back in 98 that at that point, you know, you have – pretty much the hottest era, you know, going at that point with the Steve Austin era. And I remember at the time, you know, the rumors circulating pretty well that 
Well, if Al Snow's coming in, you know, he's going into a pretty big spot. And when you came in, you, you had a very good build, you know, a couple of weeks, some, uh, you know, funny backstage uh, segments with Jerry Lawler and, of course, leading to uh, your first match back at King of the Ring. But did you sense the vibe being so much different in the locker room uh, with business just through the roof and, you know, just on fire houses every night? And, you know, was it just, uh, was it, you know, the pace of the business at that point or was to you, was it just, you know, it's another being back in the same locker room? Being back, you know, it was more of the same, you know, and you're so deep in the woods, sometimes you can't see the trees. And, um, and that was, that was my mistake because I didn't see the very opportunities that were right in front of me. And, and it's my, it's your responsibility as a performer and and too often, you know, you believe that somebody else is going to do it for you or they're going to watch out for you or they're going to direct you when really it ultimately is you. And um, and I I missed out on those. I made mistakes and missed out on those opportunities and dropped the ball, quite frankly. Hmm. And then do you think, though, but looking back, you know, had you done anything differently? I mean, you know, how much – different do you think, you know, your time could have gone uh, at that point? Because still, you know, you became a very, you know, perfect niche character for a weekly episodic television show that you provided oh, yeah. you know, something different every week. But, I mean, so from your point of view... Especially, you know, I mean, if you, if, you think, if you think back, if you re- this is quite, being quite frank, there was not a week that I wasn't on TV. Right. And there wasn't a week when it was Raw, and there wasn't a week when it was Raw and SmackDown, and there wasn't a week when it was Raw, SmackDown, and the Heat. I was on TV all the time, and I was doing, you know, it wasn't like I made, and I was just on TV doing nothing. I was on TV week after week, year after year, in a lot of stories, in a lot of angles, in a lot of things. You know what I mean? I mean, it's very prominent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, that how much I really was on TV a lot for the entire 13 years that I was with WWE. Um, you know, that's not, you know, that I, I'm very proud of that. It doesn't matter what role I could have had a more, even more prominent role is what I'm saying. If I had been able to see clearer the opportunities, not made some of those mistakes and dropped the ball, I could have had an even more prominent role. Yeah, which, like I said, you know, from our point of view, it's just, it's unbelievable because you, you know, you seemingly were just, you know, undeniable success week after week. And, you know, you got put into the hardcore division. Obviously, you know, I think uh, a lot of the fan base that looks back on that era, you know, puts you right there with the hardcore division, the hardcore championship. Did did you enjoy that time period, that hardcore title, you know, the unpredictability? And uh, really, it was every week that, you know, the fans just got into it and, you know, was that something that you felt was a good direction for you at that point? Sure. Any time I got to perform, I thought was great. I didn't care what they had me doing. You know, it didn't matter to me. And I had a character. Here's the beauty of being insane. I had a character that could do anything. There was nothing that I could not do. You know, I could dress up and be one of the Godfather's hoes. I could talk to a deer head. I could wrestle outside the building. I could dive in the Mississippi River. I could, uh, you know, uh, be a European champion and dress up as different characters. It, 
it didn't matter because people at that point in time, nine out of ten people, if you ask them, they thought I was genuinely insane. <clears throat> and that's awesome. And, because, and, and, and let me tell you something. When, when the head was at it, we were at our height. I would go into restaurants after shows, and I would buy, I would take the head, sit at the table, and I would have dinner for two. And <laughs> breakfast, I'd have breakfast for two. Lunch, I'd have breakfast for two. Or lunch for two. You know, I would, that way, because you, you can't imagine, you know, what a stir and how many people talked. And, but, and how uncomfortable sometimes I felt. But, you know, you have to. You, you have to understand that in the era that I broke in in the wrestling business, like, I walked. In, I used to work for the Mernix, you know, in Crockett, when they would come up, WCW come up through West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Indiana, and they would run, you know, spot shows or house shows up in there. And, you know, the first night that I walked in, uh, to the locker room and Nikita Koloff was in there. Uh, he spoke the same way as he did on TV the whole time until he knew that I was one of the workers and sparked the business, and then he dropped the accent. And he was a regular guy. You know, you were the person, you, you're the gimmick 24 hours a day, and you're always selling that gimmick. You never know who's watching. People that were, see, that were not wrestling fans saw me out to lunch, dinner, breakfast, Talking to, interacting with, having arguments with—I always argued but they—they they would never tip. They were so cheap. Um, with the head, and they're flipping through the TV channels next week, and they all of a sudden see me out there running around with that. And they go, "Oh, that's that guy that was in the restaurant. That guy's crazy. He's really insane." Well, now if they can believe that I'm really insane, they can a little bit more believe what I'm doing in the ring as far as wrestling. And if they can believe a little bit more of what I'm doing as a wrestling, they can believe a little bit more of the consequence as far as winning or losing, which is all they're really paying to believe in anyways, is the win and the loss. And they can believe that it really means more too because it must be real because if he's really crazy, that must be really wrestling and he must really be competing. You know, it was also like funny at that time, you know, you're saying, uh, you know, keeping character and, and you, you know, you don't want to break the character and, you know, there's kind of a funny part about it, but almost a kind of ironic, weird part was the whole, like, Walmart thing where they kind of took the character so seriously that they were saying that there was a, you know, Al Snow, the figure, has a head of a decapitated woman as, like, an accessory. What was that like? I mean, that's such a weird controversy. Well, it, it's not that weird. If you call it, all things considered, it's not that weird because it was all started not by Walmart, but by two women who were assistant professors of communications at a college in Georgia who walked into a Walmart and without doing any due diligence or homework on, on the subject matter, proceeded to espouse their opinions in a public forum. Now, keep in mind, the professors of communications of all things. So they went into Walmart, saw my action figure, assumed that it was a female head, that it must have been decapitated. And then I quote, wrote a letter to the Atlanta Constitution that I quote said that it was a training manual for future spousal abusers. So Walmart, because of it being, you know, it's all, it was all perfect storm, immediately pulled it off the shelves. And guys, just so you know, I'm still on the top 15 
I'm number five on the 15 things that Walmart feels is more of a threat to society than an assault rifle. Because they'll sell assault rifles, but they won't sell uh, my action figure. Number one is Pregnant Barbie on that list. Um, but it became a perfect storm because wrestling was so hot at the time that we were doing Raw in Philadelphia and Blue Meanie and I were doing cardio before the show in that afternoon. And the number one new, the three top stories, I'll never forget this, the three top stories on every major affiliate, Fox, ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, was the local mayoral race, in no particular order, just so you'll know, uh, the Bosnian peace process, process, and the fact that they had banned my doll, my action figure from Walmart. I, it was insane. And it became a national news event for like two weeks. And, you know, there's another opportunity I missed out on that I could have taken and used to create something to another level. And, and I, I missed out. I didn't do it. Now, did the controversy have anything to do with head disappearing for a little while and uh, perhaps uh, a little canine coming into your life afterwards? Actually, no. Um, 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 it was uh, because Vince Russo at that time, he had told me he had watched um, Son of Sam. And Son of Sam, I think in the movie, it is hearing voices from a chihuahua from a dog and uh and so he's talking to it and then that was where Vince had kind of gotten the idea along with part of the inspiration was a true story Mr. Fuji um had a neighbor that had a dog he hated and at one point um the story goes that and it's I believe it's true uh, numerous people have confirmed it that Mr. Fuji killed the dog and uh, and then invited his neighbor over for dinner and fed and cooked the dog and fed it to his neighbor. Um, and that was the whole inspiration. Those two things were the inspiration for the whole pepper angle. That's uh, that's pretty intense. He could have just thrown salt in the neighbor's eyes and we could have uh, called it a day. But that's definitely uh, a pretty unique way to introduce a. Uh, a new, you know, facet to the Al Snow character, but you know that feud with the Big Boss Man obviously is remembered for the the kennel from hell. But I think the actual part that gets overlooked is, you know, the the, the promos and the actual interaction between you and the Boss Man because he was on a hot streak there at one point of really being the most dastardly bad guy in professional wrestling in that late uh, 1999 uh, time period. He was just, you know, he was rotten, but. You know, being paired with you, you guys had some great matches, some great interaction. But, you know, everybody talks about the kennel from hell. What's your recollection on it looking back, you know, 16, 17 years later? Um, the same as it did then. It was an embarrassment. And it was, you know, everybody jokes about it and everything like that. But whatever, what everybody fails to know is that the minute that I was approached about the idea um, by Vince Russo, I said, you know, when it came to the Chihuahua, I said, because uh, the number one rule in entertainment is never work with, you know, animals or kids. And that even applies to porn, just so you guys know. Yeah. Never work <laughs> with animals or kids. And I told him, I said, y y we're going to have a trained dog, right? We're going to have a trained animal. This, this chihuahua is going to be highly trained. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They called a veterinarian clinic, got an owner who had a chihuahua, and that was Pepper. Um 
that was it. The dog had no training. And, you know, I did the best I could with the dog. Now, I was proposed the kennel from hell. Now, the kennel from hell was supposed to be a hell in a cell, and they were supposed to bring the the Rottweilers were supposed to be attack dogs were going to come out, and they were like sharks inside the cage, and there would be a cage inside the other, and the ob- object was that you were to get from one cage and then through the dogs and out through the other cage. So, um, again, throughout the entire I don't know how long we did that angle. I think it was months. I constantly said, we're going to have trained attack dogs. I said, you realize that you need probably anywhere from six to ten dogs, and they all need to be trained by a singular person who needs to stand outside the cage, and that he needs to be able to, with a command, set these dogs to be literally rabid. And I'm not making any of this up, guys, just so you know. None of it. And they're like, and, you know, I just kept being told, yeah, 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 we'll have it, we'll have them, we're going to have, you know, attack dogs. And and this is one time that, this is the only time I feel vindicated. Because I can tell you that the vast majority of the time I dropped the ball, okay? I can tell you that as far as this is concerned, I didn't drop the ball. Because now you've spent months making the entire focal point of your story dogs, Highly, you know, dogs that are going to be vicious attack dogs, okay? You've made this the focal point. You've made this the gimmick. This is the thing you've sold. This is the whole crux of your story. It's a preeminent that it works. Okay. Animals are unpredictable as it is, but it's it's even more of a factor that they have to be, they have to come off just the way you, you people envisioned it, what you've sold them. Fantastic. I show up that day in Charlotte, North Carolina. I see six people standing around, all different people, all with different dogs. I'm like, oh, shit, what's going on? I walk up to them, all of them. They That day, that day, they contacted a veterinarian clinic and they got names of owners of Rottweilers, contacted the young owners, brought them there. One dog had some obedience training. Even if they had that and they were going to have one guy with one trained dog, that was going to be it. One. And he backed out because of some disagreement legally or something. So they had six dogs that were not trained in any fashion. So now your entire crux, your entire focal point of a story is based around animals that you can't interact with. So much so that the biggest high spot that they had with the dogs was where one of the owners, a big 350-pound guy, tripped over the rug and big splashed his own dog because he was running out. So now the envision that you have dogs that are off their leashes and within the cage that's surrounding another cage You've got owners out there, just regular people with dogs that aren't trained, aren't attack dogs, that are literally uh, urinating, defecating, and fornicating around the ring um, to where no matter what we did in the ring, it wasn't going to matter because, again, remember, what was the whole story? The dogs. Well, now we can't interact with the dogs, which we tried at one point, and they just, it was ridiculous. So we did the best we could with a bad situation. But since that time, you know, uh, you know, and God loved Boston. He was awesome. 
but I'm constantly brought to task about it um, as if I'm somehow responsible. And I would, trust me, I'd take responsibility, and I do for all the other mistakes I've made and all the screw-ups, but I won't take responsibility for that because from the very onset of it, I kept insisting that we have trained animals, and we never did. It's just it's so hard to believe looking back that, you know, 17 years later and still, you know, you can recall it the way you did because, you know, it's now living in infamy as, you know, a big joke where, yeah, like you said, it was a big build and it was uh, a pretty intense story. But, you know, talk about, if you can, working with uh, with Ray Trailer, the big boss man. And like I said before, you know, he was, he was such a hot, bad guy at that time. He was on another, you know, another planet, basically. Ray was fantastic. Such a sweet guy and just such a genuinely great person. I mean, it, and, and he was another guy that it was effortless. It was easy to work with. And, you know, I think, work, you know, we worked well together, and, and that was what made it work even more, was, was that we, worked, we both worked so well together. And it made him, because I was such a sympathetic figure with the dog, you know, and again, that's a relatable situation that it made him come across not much more as a heel. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was great. I loved it. And I loved getting the opportunity to work with Ray. And I miss him dearly. Um, I really do. I just, it was so disappointing because even when we, we went and did a, uh, a vignette in Houston where I was going to take this attack dummy and throw it to the Rottweiler and it was supposed to rip it to shreds, and of course it didn't. It you know it didn't go the way that we planned it. And again I reiterated, hey, come you know the time for this hell you know kennel from hell thing. We need attack dogs. You understand that, don't you? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We do. Yeah, it'll be fine. You know, and and you know, and a large part of this is because of you know Mick's obsession with you know always poking fun and you know he always brings it up and you know, uses it as a way to make a joke, which is fine because, you know, people ask all the time, do you hate that or whatever? I love it. I love the fact that he does because all it does is continue to put me over and to put me in the front of, you know, uh, the audience and remind them of my existence and my name. So please keep doing it. But, you know, uh, but for those that don't truly understand uh, the story, I mean, it, it, you know, you're in a no-win situation in those cases, you know. And then it was up to me, you know, they gave me opportunities after that to resurrect, you know, and I did. I, to a degree, came out of it. But I, if it had been done right, it would have helped elevate and take me to a whole other direction, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, of course, you know, the association with Mick Foley, you know, it's still to this day, like you said, he's, you know, bringing it up and it's, uh, it always gets a good laugh. But, you know, I was talking about with, uh, with John before we came on that the time, you know, a little bit into, into I guess, the early, early 2000, late 99, when they turned you heel and you were kind of going against Mick and, you know, they, you went from being, you know, the kind of goofy, happy-go-lucky Al Snow to now you're, you know, you really are being the crazy Al Snow. Do you feel like that was dropped too quick? Because I think that had a lot of potential on paper. We were talking about the joke of switching the theme music and that really being a big difference in the presentation of Al Snow. Yeah, yeah. But again, I, you know, um, I, I think that, that my dropping the ball or my having a different vision probably 
a play department, you know, and it being dropped as quick as it was, and then, you know, and making some mistakes, and and you know, sometimes when your vision doesn't line up with the other with the promoters and stuff, it, you know, um, it it creates a situation where it doesn't work. You know what I mean? It doesn't things don't fall into place, and they all happen for a reason. I mean, if if it had happened and had worked. I probably would have been more figured in at a point that where, you know, I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to go do tough enough, you know. Um, and then now I would have missed out on that. So, you know, it all it all happens. Everything happens for a reason. That's so interesting about you and McFoley. I mean, obviously you guys have been friends for a long time, but I, I don't know why. I just, I never quite got it. I mean, I get, like, he's trying to be funny with the jokes, but what is it with you and him? Like, is he trying to, like, uh, you know, like, not embarrass you, but is he always trying to one-up you and, and you know, upstage you? Or, is, you know, he's just being a, a ribber, if you will? I think he's just being a ribber. You know, I think it, it also, but, you know, it comes down to, you know, as a wrestler, yeah, you want to one-up and one upstage the other person. And, uh, you know, and it, and, and it, that's kind of become what it has been. You know, it's been one up in one stage, but it's also just, it's become a gimmick for him, you know. Um, for both of us, it's become a gimmick. And, and and here's the thing is that, and again, people will sound, you know, think this sounds incredibly arrogant, but like a lot of great, you know, they've been getting a lot of guys, a lot of acts over the years and stuff, like Martin and Lewis and, you know, uh, uh, God, you know, uh, just great comedic acts that just click and they have this timing and one plays a straight guy and one, you know, plays the the comic. And uh, that worked. It works for me and Mick, you know, whenever we had an on-screen chemistry. And, and the same goes for me and Blackman. You know, the roles were switched. Blackman became the straight guy and I became the, the comic guy. You know, one guy's always got to be the foil, you know, Martin Lewis, Abba Costello, uh, you know, you go down the line. There was always that one guy that was the the foil for the other guy. And, you know, for Mick and I, it works out that I am the foil. And for me and Steve Blackman, it was Steve was the foil. So. That's great. That and you we do have true genuine, we true, do have true genuine chemistry. It works. Oh, no doubt. It's, and it's great that you said that, and it's kind of funny you said it because that's where I was headed next because, like, exactly like you said, it's like almost like the roles were reversed and, you know, you became, you know, the jokey guy and Blackman became the serious guy. But did you think head cheese almost had more legs than than they got? Because it was almost kind of like you guys were doing a lot of mid-car stuff, but you guys were you were really, really over, and the backstage stuff was hilarious between you guys. Unquestionably. Um, you know, they do the, the minute by minute and segment ratings. And at that time, from what I understand, the highest rated segments on SmackDown were our backstage segments every week. Um, we were phenomenally over together. Um, you know, and I, and at one point they, they did consider giving us the tag belts. Um, and then somebody voted against it or something, from what I understand, but you never really know. But, we, you know, the one way you can tell if we, if anybody's true is over to any degree, think about it like this, guys. Okay, 
if you buy a commercial, a 30-second commercial on rest on WWE TV, back when I was with WWE, I think it was like $50,000 for 30 seconds. Okay? If they give me six minutes of television time, how much money have they invested in it? Basically $600,000 worth of television time. Do you think they're going to just do that with anybody and everybody? And if Blackman, Blackman and I didn't work, they wouldn't have continued week after week to allow us to go out and film these vignettes that sometimes were multi-segment vignettes that went throughout the whole show of us doing the most ridiculous stuff. But it did it because it was worth the investment because it got ratings. And and, and I you know, Steve was awesome because he was the perfect straight man because he was, he truly was straight. I mean, he, he was, he's, you know, he's a great guy. He's fantastic, but he was awesome to play off of because he was so, so serious. Yeah, you two have played off each other great, and it was just funny, like, just the combination, and, and obviously the name that she's, you know, just it's just you know, obviously entertaining and very funny. But, it, you know, it was kind of interesting, you know, in, in the your, you know, WWE run, you know, you kind of, it was almost like a, I wouldn't say start-stop, but almost like a start-stop where you kind of built some momentum and then they killed it. Do you ever feel like, you know, not that you were underused, but do you ever feel like you were maybe undervalued a little bit by the WWE while you were there? Uh, I think uh, I was undervalued by myself, and I I didn't value myself, and I didn't I didn't uh, see myself in you know I didn't focus on being more than what I was, you know, and that was why they maybe didn't see it as well. Um, ultimately, you know, if I had focused more on being more of a presence and being more prominent and being more of the thing. Like in ECW, I was focused on being. I went there for that purpose of being the thing that sold tickets, getting myself over. And then in WWE, I kind of lost that. And I kind of, you know, was more worried about just keeping, staying there in WWE, keeping my spot, as opposed to being the thing. And that, that's my fault. And with ECW, I, I was very curious about this, not with the old ECW, and, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but with the new ECW, did you ever you know, get the inkling that it was actually going to work and they were actually going to make it kind of like the old ECW, or did you think, like, oh, this is going to be strange, you know, the new ECW on sci-fi? Well, they, they can never make it like the old ECW. They can't. You know, that's like, you think of it like this, Okay. Think of ECW as like a comic book. And think of, well, think of wrestling as general as a comic book. Now, we're going to do a Spider-Man movie, okay? But we're going we're gonna to invest millions, we're going to invest millions of your dollars, the two of you. You're going to give me millions and millions of dollars to make a movie about Spider-Man, all right? You want that money back, don't you? Mm. Um, and you you would actually like that money back and some. Otherwise, why are you giving me millions of dollars, correct? So how are you going to make that money back? By appealing to the most broadest audience possible. 
correct? Yep. Okay. ECW, when it was in its heyday, appealed to a very niche audience. WWE's version of ECW requires them to appeal to as broad an audience as possible. So now we have Spider-Man. We have an audience that already knows Spider-Man, reads Spider-Man comics religiously every week. Now we have to do a balancing act of appealing to and not alienating that audience. But at the same time, we've got to retell the story and re and do it in such a way as it draws in all the rest of the country, the population, that doesn't read comic books, that doesn't know who Spider-Man is, doesn't know his backstory. All they've heard is, oh, there's a Spider-Man guy, um, and he's a comic book hero. Well, I don't read that stuff. I never have. Or, oh, I read that when I was a kid. I don't read that now. But you gotta, you got to get that audience to come and pay to see it, too. So you got to do the same thing with ECW. You got to try to some degree appeal to that original niche audience. But really, you've got to appeal to people that didn't know anything about ECW, never watched it, didn't know even if it existed, and now you've got to try to get them to pay to see it. That's that's not easy. Not to mention, ECW was a moment. It's all timing. It's all being in the right place at the right time. And ECW was in the right place at the right time because Paul Heyman benefited from a vast amount of really amazing quality talent that had been wrestling for years and had been brought in and indoctrinated back from some of them as early as territories, if not the territories, shortly thereafter with the influence of wrestlers who had been in the territories and had no national exposure, but yet had this underground following and knowledge and intrigue and curiosity about them that he could then use to capitalize on. And he did. And it, it was a great synergistic situation where it allowed these people, these guys who never had exposure to get exposure on a level they never had. And yet, it allowed him a talent pool that had experience and understanding and knowledge that, over time, has faded away. So true. And if you think at that point, you know, obviously Paul Heyman is there, but it's Vince McMahon's ECW. So, you know, I, you know, I guess I kind of was thinking maybe. You know, you try to recreate some of that magic, but obviously uh, with Vince in charge and you, know, you got shareholders and, you know, it's on a completely different network, it's on sci-fi, you, I guess you're going to go a different direction. But, you know, when you're there and Paul is there at that point, was Paul, you know, a little bit uh, on edge where he was thinking, oh, you're going to kill my, my quote-unquote ECW? I, I, I don't know. You're asking, now you're asking for complete conjecture and speculation and and, you know, I mean, I can speculate on my opinion. Mm. I, I couldn't even begin to speculate on any of that. You know, and too often, too many people do, you know, they base, they, they voice speculation in a public forum and, you know, as if it's knowledge. And, and I try not to do that as I've gotten older. 
um, you know, try to speak on situations or circumstances I truly don't, I wasn't privy to, so I have no idea. Well, how about you there? Like, did you think, like, oh, Vince is just trying to kill each other? Because, you know, the longstanding... Of course, not. Uh, of course not. Why would anyone, come on, don't be ridiculous. Why would anyone buy, okay, you're going to buy a cow, and you're going to invest a bunch of money in buying a cow, and now you're going to try and kill it. Why are you going to do that? It doesn't make any sense. Vince is clearly a very intelligent, very creative, very successful businessman. Do you think that he actually is petty enough to where he would invest millions of dollars to take on, a, like, ECW, a product, and then just use it to destroy it? That he didn't want it to succeed? That even for his own ego, if nothing else, he couldn't crow and say, I've resurrected something that was dead? And, and made it even more successful on a bigger stage? Really? That is seriously? true, you know. Is that what, I mean, seriously, that's the way wrestling fans think. Yeah, and i got to tell you guys, I, I love dearly and appreciate every wrestling fan. But i got to tell you, you're the most screwed up group of people I've ever met. You really <laughs> are. Because you come up with theories like this that are got to be, they, they're not, there's no basis in common sense whatsoever on it. None. And yet we adhere to it as if it's a religion. And, uh, you know, and then well, I'm going to get a ton of heat because I, I contradicted the popular theory that, you know, Vince killed ECW. And, you know, oh, he's just kissing Vince's ass because he wants to go back or whatever. I, no, I'm not. I've never kissed anybody's ass. And I'm not going to start now. Um, I'm not going to ask into my career. Why do I got to kiss anybody's now? And, uh, and, and secondly, you're the only group of people I know, and I've spoken to people that, about this. The only people I know that will watch a product every week and every week tell everybody how much you hate the product and yet watch it again next week and to tell everybody how much you hate that product. I, I can watch one, a TV show one time, and if I don't like it, that's what I don't do. I don't watch it again. Now, there may be a TV show that I didn't like, and I watched it another episode, and I was like, Man, this sucks. I never once watched it again. And here's another thing. I never hated it so much that I went on the Internet and complained about it and then watched it again so I could complain about it more. <laughs> the only movie I've ever seen that upset me so much because it was so ridiculously bad was The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. And I wasn't going to go on the Internet and complain about it. I wanted to buy a plane ticket, fly to L.A., <laughs> drive to his house, walk up to his door, punch him in the face, and demand my $16 back for the movie that I paid for. That was it. <laughs> but I wasn't going to go watch the movie next week and then complain about it again. You guys are the biggest gluttons for punishment I have ever seen. You people are, I'm insane. You people are insane. You truly are. I love you dearly, because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be able to do this crazy thing that I do, but... I've never seen such oxymoronic people in my life. You're the epitome of irony. You watch something to hate it, not to be entertained by it, but to complain about it. Fascinating. Yes, and, you know, with a lot of the wrestling fans, they're always, like, great. You know, maybe their own narrative or their own rumor or their own story, you know, about Vince or Paul or whoever. So, I mean, the, the wrestling fans are definitely sickle. And, you know, that was a longstanding thing that people have said about ECW. But obviously Vince really, I mean, he's out to make money. And all he cares about is, you know, the bottom line. And then all he cares about is, 
the USA Network and Sci-Fi Network because he wants those ratings because, you know, obviously the bottom line is he's going to make money one way or another, and obviously he's hoping it's through the network and then you're eventually um, adding to well, no, no. Let me Okay, let me explain this to you guys, okay? Have you guys ever been to Raw? Yes. Okay. Have you ever been back in the back behind the building? Have you ever seen all those semi-trucks? Yes. Okay. I want you to add, I want you to listen very carefully. How much do you think those semi trucks cost? Ooh. How much do you think it costs for those the drivers who drive those semi trucks? How much do you think it costs for the insurance, for the permits? How much do you think it costs for everything that they carry in those semi trucks? How much do you think it costs for the crew to unload those semi trucks and into the building? How much do you think it costs for the rent for that building? How much do you think it costs for the permits for that building for that night that you're going to go watch Raw? How much do you think it costs for that stage, for the people that set that stage up? How much do you think it costs for the lights, the lighting crew, the camera, the camera crew, the sound, the sound crew? How much do you think it costs for the ring, the ring crew? How much do you think it costs for the referees, the wrestlers? How much do you think it costs for all the production people? How much do you think it costs for the satellite time? How much do you, do you think it costs for all the people that are back st- back at Stanford at the TV studio to ensure that all of that goes through? How much do you think it costs for the TV studio itself, the equipment that is higher, ed- uh, more cutting edge, and has been than CBS, ABC, or NBC combined? How much do you think it costs for the Titan Towers? How much do you think it costs for maintenance? How much do you think it costs for all the staff that are in there? How do you think Vince pays for all of that? Right. Pretty, so you know, do, you any, do you think at any point in time he's going to take something or someone and just bury it just for shits and giggles? No, definitely not. At no point in time is he ever going to take a, a talent or anyone else, and he's not going to try to get whatever he can, as much as he can, out of them. That's, it's it's the most absurd idea. And you know who propagates this idea? The talent themselves. I used to myself used to go around and say, Vince would never he never gave me an opportunity. Vince just buried me, blah, blah, blah. I, and now hindsight being twenty twenty, I know I was an idiot. I was being a complete asshole because I missed those opportunities. Vince gave me those opportunities and sometimes Vince didn't even realize he gave me opportunities. And I then made the mistake of not taking them or dropping the ball. And then, of course, much like I said, my viewpoint, my vision of myself was a limited theirs. At the end of the day, my job was to motivate people to pay to see me. And I did. But I could have done it even more and could have done it better. And I could have taken advantage of the opportunities that were presented. And that same goes for everyone else that's there now and have been there. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Because at the end of the day, boys, the minute you step in that ring, there's nothing short of shutting off the lights, turning off the cameras, that anyone can do to stop you. And there's nothing that anyone can do to help you. You're on your own. It's your responsibility. Can they set you up to have a better success? Clearly. Much like the kennel from hell. They could have set me up for far better success than what they did. Absolutely. 
But I share some of that responsibility because regardless, the number one rule in wrestling is to take shit and make Shinola. Take the stage you have. Do whatever you can to make the most of it. And regardless of whether the dogs were what they were or how they acted, I should I I didn't obviously do enough to take the focus off the dogs, even though it was a very, very steep hill to climb. Yeah, I, still, I should have thought of some way to do it. Yeah, very well said, and and you know you became somewhat of a story trainer. And is that something you know you preach to you know prospective trainees? Is that you know they really need to um, you know make something of themselves and and not so much rely on you know blaming the system, so to speak, but you know kind of take it everything into their own hands. Absolutely, I do. Because at the end of the day, and I don't care what anybody tells you, the wrestling business is the wrestler's business. We are it. Wrestlers are everything, and we are the be-all, end-all. We're the alpha and the omega. Without us, wrestling promotions don't have a product. But on the flip side, without the promotions, wrestling doesn't. wrestlers don't have an avenue. They don't have a stage. They don't have a platform. So it works very much in hand. But you have to give them a product that they can now utilize and they can exploit. And that's up to you. And it doesn't matter what circumstance or situation you put in. You've got to do it. The responsibility is on you. It's not up to the promotion. The promotion is there to take advantage of what you have created. And you know that going in. And it's up to you to create it for them to exploit and for you to now take advantage of and use that to your benefit. That's the way it works. And and this thought process nowadays of, of well, you know, I've, you've spent X amount of years in the business. You've paid your dues. You're entitled to this. I'm not entitled to shit. Nobody is. You know what you're entitled to? The opportunity to go out there if you can and make yourself an attraction that then the promotion will be used to exploit, that you can use to your benefit. That's the way it works, guys. This ain't Walmart. You don't, you're not entitled to something based on time served. You could be in the business for six months, and if you create something, for whatever reason, that the promotion can exploit, two of you can work together and both benefit from and make money, guess what you get the opportunity to do? Exactly that. You could be in the business for 16 years, and then all of a sudden, that happens. You could be in the business for 33, and I could come up with suddenly, magically, something that the promotion could exploit that both of us could use to our advantage. Absolutely correct. And uh, as we start to wind it down here, you know, just to piggyback on that a little bit, to you know, it's kind of what you're, uh, you know, you're doing today, and you know, you're working, basically, you know, you're working for TNA, you're working backstage. What's it been like, you know, with TNA? You know, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, movement and a lot of changes with TNA, but what's it like now moving forward and kind of going in more of, it seems like more of a, um, more of a, I guess you could say more of a positive direction? Uh, for me, it's, it's you know, it's more of the same. I, you know, um show up and I do the do the very best of my ability and I try to help the talent 
based on my experience, not based on what I know, but based on where I've made mistakes and where I've dropped the ball. Um, I try to, you know, give them the benefit of that and uh, so that they can take advantage of the platform or stage that they have um, and get a better understanding of those opportunities that I wish somebody had done the same for me at those same times. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I wait, and when they tell me that I'm booked, um, I show up and I do the absolute best I can. And i got to tell you guys, uh, people can say whatever they want about TNA, and there's a lot that's been said and both positive and negative. I've always been impressed from the day that I was there that, the, you know, they put on a show that a show that just rivals. It's not on the par, but comes close to WWE with a third of the budget, a third of the uh, uh, equipment, a third of the uh, crew, and you know, um, and and off and not even less than that of office staff. And everyone there, both in the ring and outside the ring, the whole time they're there, all work so incredibly hard. I mean, they bust their butts and and deserve nothing but the utmost respect for what you ultimately end up seeing. I mean, they 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 kick ass when it comes to that, and, you know. And I've always said that about TNA. One cool thing that TNA definitely does, and and we kind of touched on it before, because you mentioned the you know the Bound for Glory, the Bound for Gold match, is you, know, you kind of see almost like that old ECW flavor where you'll kind of see a guy show up, like Matt Morgan showed up for a week, Big Van Vader showed up a week, and then boom, all of a sudden, you know, Al Snow is in like a hardcore war, you know, as a surprise guy against Team Dixie. You think that's like a, almost like a kind of a cool benefit of being. You know, kind of a, a you know, basically not with a small promotion, but a smaller promotion where you can kind of have a cool angle for a week, where like you know, Al Snow will come in and you know, kind of save the day. I think that's a kind of cool of Canada that they can bring guys in for one week or, or two weeks at a time. Oh, it's really cool. But you know, WWE's done a lot of that same kind of stuff too. You know, um, they've taken advantage of you know, uh, outside guys and former stars and things like that, um, and it, it is cool. It's cool for the audience because it's a, it's a nice surprise, and it's, it's, you know, it's something unexpected, and that's really the one of the funnest things about wrestling is that element of of, of of surprise, of not being able to, unpredictability, of not knowing what's coming next, and then the anticipation to look forward to it. Did you like what TNA did with the gut check? Because I felt like that was something definitely different that we hadn't seen. I loved it. I thought that you know, I thought it was uh, it was different, and it was and it it gave an avenue, a genuine avenue for guys that had not been seen, you know, uh, an opportunity to to be seen on a, a national stage. Um, you know, it wasn't perfect uh, by any means, but. But it was uh, every chance was a legitimate opportunity. It was a legitimate chance. You know, Joey Ryan's a prime example of that. You know, Joey Ryan came in and literally made, you know, made his own opportunity. You know, he, you know, um, 
remember that kid being in the ring and then backstage, and you could feel him shaking. But he didn't back down, and he believed in himself, and he took advantage of it, which created that whole angle and all that opportunity and TV time and, and allowed you to now know really who Joey Ryan is more so than any other time because of his time on TV and, and during Gutcha because of, you know, he had the balls to and give them something. He's a prime example of he gave them something to exploit, to take advantage of. Caused them to be creative and go, oh, man, we could do this and tell this story. And, you know, whereas if he had just went out there and tussled his match and not been that character, that personality, and reacted the way he did and stepped up to task, we wouldn't be having a conversation about him right now. Yeah. True. Very true. And it's kind of funny because you mentioned that Jerry Lawler role before, you know, about how if they want a guy to get over, they'll see with Jerry Lawler. Well, TNA has given that Jerry Lawler role to you. And it seems like if they want to get somebody over, they'll kind of bring you in for, you know, for something small. And, and you is that kind of like full circle for you? That you're kind of like the guy that's going to get this, you know, this next guy over? Well, I thought, I thought I'm really flattered that you, you compare me to Jerry Lawler. I really am. I never looked at it that way. never thought of it. <coughs> but I guess now that you mentioned it, I guess that kind of has been the role that I've been, I've kind of been playing. And uh, I am flattered, you know, gotten to do it. You know, that's awesome. Because it, it's true. I mean, as a, as a Joey Ryan, I was a babyface. With Grado, I was a heel. I mean, you know, and, 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 and in the, the thing that we did in New York, I was, you know, the last ditch guy to come running in and have that big eight-man tag and, you know. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, yeah, I was, I was just thinking, you, you definitely were like the, that Jerry, you know, definitely the Jerry Lawler role with, uh, for TNA. But one question, well, I, 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 I'm flattered that you would, honestly, I'm flattered you guys would make this investment to really, yeah. Hey, no problem. Now, one question I, you know, I really wanted to ask you, and we kind of touched on it before, and, and you kind of said it was hard for you to choose or hard for you to pick, but do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple of matches you had in your career that really stick out? It's like, man, I, you know, that was great. I know maybe uh, some ECW matches maybe might really stick out to you. Uh, you know, um, I can tell you, like, there were a couple that I had with Chris Candido that were those moments where everything just flowed. Um, uh, I worked with Chris Benoit three times, once in Lima, Ohio, in my school where I first met him, and then again in ECW, and then again one time uh, for WWE, and we always just clicked. Uh, there were matches with Bob Holly that, man, you just, again, what what you as fans would think, oh, that's a memorable match, that's a memorable match. For me, it was those nights where uh, it all just was effortless, that it was all through sense. It was all through just feeling and just being in the right place at the right time. And you know, uh, I had a couple. I had those with a couple, couple times with the guy that trained me, Jim Lancaster. I had him with, you know, uh, you know, working in Dick the Bruiser's territory with Spike Huber and uh, you know a couple of other guys um, at that time. Um, you know, so those those are the ones that I remember that stand out to me. You know, and. Uh, a couple um, of matches with the Rock and Roll Express and, you know, that were in 
maybe not necessarily the biggest towns or in front of the biggest audiences or whatever, but they were those nights where you just you could all just feel just you don't think you just do and you're there and you react and, and the audience reacts just the way you want as much as you want for as long as you want until you take it to the next direction and and it, you know the, those were I mean, they're just just awesome. Now, Al, you spent 33 years as a professional wrestler thus far. We've established that you are the modern-day Jerry Lawler for uh, TNA <laughs> Wrestling. But, <laughs> but when you close the book on your career and you look back on everything and you, know, you look at all the just amazing things that you've done, what's the legacy that Al Snow leaves on the wrestling business at the end of the day? Um. I think the the, the the kids that I've trained, um, the next generation of, of you know, I've tried so hard um, to pass on the art of wrestling, which is truly the art of physical storytelling within the context of a competitive situation. Um, I've tried to keep uh, the, the real intrinsic things about professional wrestling alive, past goes on, and as much as possible. And I think that, you know, uh, regardless of what anyone thinks as far as how successful I may have or may not have been, which I, I feel like I was, because at the start of this, guys, I'll be, I'll be truthful. Uh, the only goals I had were to be able to uh, make enough money to make a living at it, uh, to create a name that to some degree or another, would live beyond my career and have matches that people would remember to create moments that people wouldn't forget. And I feel like I've, I've done all three of those things. Um, so to all the end tomorrow, you know, I wouldn't have a single regret. And, you know, as far as legacy, you know, uh, all, the, uh, all the kids that I trained, all the tough enough kids, all the kids that I trained in Body Slammers in Lima, Ohio, that went on to make careers and, and impressions in wrestling to whatever varying degrees. Uh, all the kids that I trained in the developmental program for WWE and OVW and the amazing experiences with them. Um, a lot of those guys are now major players in WWE. And, you know, I feel like to some degree or another, you know, I'll play a role in that. And uh, and some people may disagree with that, um, but I've played a factor to some degree or another in a lot of people and their development and and their careers, and even some of them even having a career um, in wrestling. And uh, I think that there's one thing that would be my legacy would be that. Well, that's absolutely uh, fantastic and uh, very well said. But uh, We really appreciate you spending all this time with us tonight, and it's been informative, it's been educational, and it's been quite fun. But where can the listeners oh, of the two-man power trip of wrestling find Al Snow if they want to uh, reach out and touch you? Uh, well, you can always reach out and touch me. I mean, I'm never opposed to that, but... Um... <laughs> You can find me at uh, on Facebook. Uh, I have both a regular 
Facebook page and out the Real Al Snow. I also have a fan page. I'm also I've created a new page uh, for Facebook for the Al Snow's Wrestling Academy. I'm opening up a uh, wrestling school in London, England. Um, I'm going to start working with uh, UK talent and training guys and bringing in um, guest trainers and things like that. Um, I'm looking forward to doing that next year. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter on the real Al Snow. I know, yes, there were fakes, and I would notify them, hey, if you're going to imitate being a celebrity, why wouldn't you aim higher? Because I certainly, <laughs> if I were going to fake being somebody famous, I wouldn't fake being me. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at the real Al Snow, um, and you know, uh, check me out. In I've got lots of movies out there right now. Penny Dreadful Picture Show, uh, Overtime. Um, I just got done doing a movie called Lost Prevention. Uh, just did a movie uh, in Vancouver, BC, a comedy called The Perfect Pickup that'll be out soon. Um, Money Shot, uh, which is on Netflix. Uh, Overtime's on Hulu and iTunes. Penny Dreadful is on iTunes. Uh, the Witches of Oz. Um, I can keep going down the list. Uh, make sure that you don't miss my magic show for the blind if I'm coming to a city near you. Trust me, it's truly amazing. Uh, if you can see, it's kind of boring. You just see me standing there saying to die a lot, but if you're blind, it's incredible. <laughs> very, very nice, and I want to tell you, guys, not to mention, let me say one last thing, and that is yeah. that if anybody's interested, I will fight small farm animals for money. So just want to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> Yes, Farmamania 2016 main evented by uh, Al Snow, perhaps a, a chicken or a pig. But we really want to uh, really want to thank you. But before we let you go, I want to tell you I made it through the whole interview without asking about Leaf Cassidy's affinity for the monkeys. So I want to just tell you I put that oh, one on yeah. the shelf. <laughs> I agree they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I'm glad I'm not alone. I agree. I agree. Well, I think Dolan's was was an amazing you know musician. He, he sang on all their songs. I mean, it was, you know, it was awesome. They had a ton of number one hits. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big, uh, big fan of the monkeys. I don't want to take up too much time on the air, but I'm glad you agree. So thank you so much, Al. This has been uh, a blast. We really, uh, really, really appreciate it, especially all the time. It's been awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you guys very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.